Part four of the Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freicher von Forstner. Translated by Anna Crafts Codman with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. The Journal, Part 4 Before making my official report, I inspected my two prizes that were docked just behind us. A chain parted them from the rest of the quay, with sentries placed on guard. I gave the preference of my first visit, naturally as a polite man should, to the steamer with so many of the fair sex on board. I hoped that, by appearing surrounded by my officers, I should dispel their fear of the German barbarians. I was told the ladies belonged to a variety troupe that was to give a performance the next evening in London. Poor London, to be deprived by our fault of an enjoyable evening. Among the other passengers were Belgians and French, who had waited six weeks in Holland for a chance to get across and also an American reporter of the Hearst newspaper. He had a camera for taking moving pictures, and we discovered later that he had photographed the whole occurrence of the capture of the ship by our submarine. A few days later, the Graphic of March 27, 1915, published several of his pictures, which eventually found their way to many American papers. I was ordered that evening to dine with the commanding admiral of the Marine Corps, Excellency von Schroeder, and a motor called for me and took me to Bruges, where he resided. The peaceful landscape and the ploughed fields betrayed but few signs of war, and I saw Belgian peasants and German soldiers planting together the seed for the coming harvest. While the authorities were passing judgment on my two prizes, I had a chance to visit the surrounding country. The English had destroyed in their retreat everything in Zeebrugge except the New Palace Hotel, the New Post Office, and the Belgian Bank. I made the most of this short opportunity to observe the doings of our men in this conquered land paid for with German blood. I was interested to note how our Marines had been incorporated into every branch of the Army service and how easily they adapted themselves to this new life. They served as infantry in the trenches, as artillery behind the great coast guns, and also as cavalry mounted on big Flemish mares. They had even been transformed into car conductors on the electric line that runs behind the dunes between Zeebrugge and Ostend. In fact, they filled every kind of position, and few Belgians were to be seen. We had created here a second German fatherland and home, notwithstanding the enemy's reports that we had acted like Huns and barbarians. But as neither the country nor the people were of great interest to me, my attention was centered on the study of our own troops. Meantime, the unloading of our steamers had begun, and I had to supervise it myself, as the cargoes were composed of perishable foodstuffs, the usual delays were overcome, and hundreds of sailors and soldiers were ordered to unload the ships. Out of the hold rose newly slaughtered pigs and sheep, 
and ducks, which were at once distributed among the various regiments. Two hundred barrels of the best Munich beer were rolled over the quays, and two barrels found their way on board our little boat, which no one could begrudge us. On the Zanstrom there were 4,400 boxes of fresh eggs, each box containing 1,800 eggs, and I was told by an army officer that every man of the northern army received eight eggs for the Easter festival. On the following afternoon, the nationality of the crew and of the passengers was recorded. A number of them were sent as prisoners of war to concentration camps, and many touching farewells ensued between the men and the women who were left behind. The others were taken on a special train, under military guard, to the Dutch frontier. The German sailors on whom this mission devolved looked very jolly as they sat armed to the teeth in the railway carriages by twos, watching over two pretty variety actresses, and I think they would willingly have prolonged the journey further. I walked along the train to say good-bye to the passengers who had so unwillingly made our acquaintance, and I was warmly thanked by an old American, to whom I personally had done a small favor, for my courteous treatment. He spoke in the name of all the passengers who had experienced also the greatest civility at the hands of the port authorities. I declined these words of thanks, for they had only received the treatment that was their proper due. After the train had left, the hour of our own departure had struck. We cast off the lines that had kept us bound for two such memorable days on the Flemish coast. In passing by, I waved a farewell to the two Dutch captains, and away we went, westward ho. CHAPTER Seven, OFF THE COAST OF ENGLAND Our boat carried us speedily away, further and further towards the west, and soon the lighthouse on the mole and the outline of the country we had conquered faded away in the evening twilight. Before long we should be surrounded by only hostile shores. We first sighted the French port of Bologna, where the imposing bronze statue of Napoleon I stands on a marble column fifty-three meters high, with eyes turned toward the English coast. It was built to commemorate the expedition planned by Napoleon in 1803 against the sons of Albion, whose descendants have so recently landed on French soil, and as they lie there encamped, they may wonder, when gazing at the statue of the great emperor, if he would have welcomed them with the same enthusiasm with which they have been received by the present rulers of France. On our very first day in the French Channel, we were able to sink several steamers after the crews had left in their lifeboats, and on general lines a similar picture was traced at every sinking. We were now granted our first opportunity to steer a submarine above and below the waters of the North Atlantic, the ocean seemed to rejoice at our coming, and revealed itself to us in all the glory of a March storm. Only those who have seen such a storm can realize its proud majesty. The gigantic blue-black waves, with their shining crests lashed by the west wind, came rushing onward into the open mouth of the channel, and the hemmed-in waters, roaring and surging, 
dashed themselves against the sharp, rocky points of the French coast, or broke less violently but in ceaseless unrest on the chalk cliffs of England, which glimmered white in the rays of the sun. It is a splendid sight to watch this great spectacle from the high deck of a steamer as it plows its way through the foaming flood, or to be borne aloft on the top of the waves with a ship under full sail, but it is still more wonderful to behold nature's great display from the half-submerged conning tower of a U-boat, and to dive through the mountainous breakers until they close, gurgling over our heads, and hide us from all curious glances. Our little nutshell, in perpetual motion, is drawn down into the deep valleys of the ocean waves, or tossed upwards on the comb of the following breaker. We are soaked to the skin, and the spray covers us like a silvery veil. Our boat, as well as ourselves, is daubed with a salt crust. Our eyes smart, and our lips have a briny tang. But to us sailors it's a joy to be the sport of the wild waves, and even those few unfortunates who always suffer from seasickness never lose their love of the sea. We were thus, in the midst of a strong northwesterly gale, lying in wait for our prey at the entrance of the English Channel, but no ship was to be seen. Most of them took the northerly course beyond the war zone around the Shetland Islands, and it was not until the next morning, north of the Scilly Islands in the Bristol Channel, that we caught sight behind us of a big steamer running before the wind like ourselves. The wind had somewhat fallen, and the March sun was shining bright and warm. The steamer was heading for Cardiff, and we judged by her course that she had sailed from some port in South America. Turning about and breasting the waves, we faced the oncoming steamer and signaled to her to stop, but hardly had she espied us than she also turned about in the hope to escape. She showed no flag to indicate her nationality, so surely we had sighted an English vessel. Even after we had fired a warning shot, she tried by rapid and tortuous curves to return to her former course and endeavor thereby to reach her home port. Meantime she sent up rockets as signals of distress in quick succession to draw the attention of British patrol ships that must be hovering in the neighborhood. This obliged us to fire a decisive shot, and with a loud report our first shell struck the ship close to the captain's bridge. Instead of resigning himself to his fate, the Englishman sent up more signals and hoisted the British flag. This showed us he was game, and the fight began in dead earnest. All honor to the pluck of these English captains, but how reckless to expose in this manner the lives of their passengers and crew, as we shall see in the present instance. Circling around us, he tried to ram us with his prow, and we naturally avoided him by also turning in the same direction. Every time he veered about, he offered us his broadside for a shot. With well-directed aim we took advantage of this target, and our successful fire gave him full proof of the skill of our gunners. The latter had a hard time of it. The high seas poured over the low deck, and they continually stood up to their necks in the cold salt water. They were often dragged off the deck by the great receding waves, 
but as they were tied by strong ropes to the cannons we were able to pull them up again and fortunately no lives were lost on seeing our gunners struggling in the seas our foe hoped to make good his escape but with each telling shot our own fighting blood was aroused and the wild chase continued a well-aimed shell tore off the english flagstaff at the stern but the union jack was quickly hoisted again on the foretop this also was shot down and a third time the flag flew from a line of the yard of the foretop but the flag had been raised too hastily and it hung reversed with the union jack upside down and in this manner it continued to fly until it sank with the brave ship the fight had lasted four hours without our being able to deliver the death stroke several fires had started on the steamer but the crew had been able to keep them under control big holes gaped open in the ship's side but there were none as yet below the water line and the pumps still sufficed to expel the water it often occurred that in the act of firing the waves choked our cannons and the shot went hissing through tremendous sheets of water while we were blinded by a deluge of foam of course we were all wet through and through but that was of no importance for we had already been wet for days it was now essential for us to put an end to this deadly combat for english torpedo-boat destroyers were hurrying on to the calls of distress of the steamer big clouds of smoke against the sky showed they were coming towards us under full steam the ship was by this time listing so heavily that it was evident we need waste no more of our ammunition and besides the appearance of another big steamer on the southern horizon was an enticing inducement to quit the battle scene and seek another victim we cast a last look on our courageous adversary who was gradually sinking and i must add it was the first and last prey whose end we did not have the satisfaction to witness we had been truly impressed by the captain's brave endurance notwithstanding his lack of wisdom and we knew that the men of war were coming to his rescue we read in the papers on our return to a german port that the vosges had sunk soon after we departed and what remained of the passengers and crew were picked up by the english ships the captain was rewarded for his temerity by being raised to the rank of reserve officer and the crew were given sums of money but all the other officers had perished as well as several sailors and a few passengers who had been forced to help the stokers in order to increase the speed of the flying steamer we hurried away therefore in the direction of the other ship and as we approached we soon recognized the spanish colors flying from her flagstaff and painted on her sides the captain willingly stopped at our bidding and dispatched an officer to us bearing the ship's papers the stormy waves had somewhat subsided and although the occupants of the boat got very wet yet they were able without danger to come alongside our submarine there was no contraband on board the spanish steamer and before dismissing the officer i admonished him always to stop at the first signal from a u-boat he assured me that since the english were constantly hoisting the spanish flag he had lost all desire to navigate again in the dangerous waters of the war zone 
Much relieved at getting away so easily, he went on board his own steamer, which resumed its voyage towards the lovely city of Santander on the Spanish coast. I read an account later of our encounter with the Augustina in a number of the Matin of April 1, 1915. It was entitled Toujours le You, and spoke of our undesirable presence in French waters. A following number did us the honor to represent a large picture of our boat, with the officers standing on the bridge, taken probably by a passenger on board the Spanish vessel. An arrow pointed to us with the inscription, Voila l'équipage du bandit. The English usually refer to us as the pirates, and in their rage describe our activities as those of the German submarine pest. We are accustomed to these flattering allusions, and it amused me to preserve and frame our picture from the Metin. In the next few days we stopped and searched several neutral steamers and sank many English ones. The captains were occasionally stubborn and refused to obey our signals, so a few accidents occurred. In one case, for instance, a stray shot struck some passengers in a lifeboat, which collapsed. But, as a rule, passengers and crews were picked up by the many sailboats and fishing boats which circulate in the Irish Sea and in St. George's Channel, and it was we who generally summoned these fishermen to go to the rescue of their shipwrecked countrymen. The method of capture was always the same, and now, our ammunition being nearly exhausted, we steered a homeward course, with the hope of securing a few more steamers on the way. We were again favored by good luck, for at the entrance of the English Channel we ran across a large steamer coming from America and heading for a French port, heavily laden with all the fine things that the Americans at present so willingly export. The chase began in the usual fashion, as we followed closely in the enemy's wake. Although the captain made an effort to escape, yet he evidently felt certain from the beginning that he would be unable to do so, for he immediately swung out the lifeboats, ready to be lowered. We were economizing our ammunition, and did not, according to our custom, fire a warning shot. But as we drew near the steamer, we suddenly saw dark, round objects thrown overboard. The man at the helm beside me exclaimed, They are throwing mines! But I was not of the same opinion. We proceeded quietly to examine these suspicious objects more closely, and we discovered they were simply bundles of clothes the sailors were trying to save. In pitching them into the lifeboats, they had missed the mark, and the bundles had fallen into the sea. A report had apparently spread through the English seaports that the men had but scant time to save their belongings when they were sighted by one of our submarines, and, since that time, their clothes were strapped together ready for a sudden emergency. The steamer stopped and the crew on this occasion took to the boats with a perfect discipline we were little accustomed to witness. The Flaminian was sent to the bottom of the sea with one of our last torpedoes. The following morning, before bidding the west coast of England a temporary farewell, we made another good catch. We sighted a broad-bottomed, four-masted steamer, also coming from America, 
laden down, as we soon ascertained, with five thousand tons of oats, and making its way to Havre. We started after it, and, as usual, it tried to escape, but a well-directed shot through the bridge and chart house brought it to a stop, and it signaled that the engines were being reversed. The boats were lowered, and on drawing near we perceived the captain with others on the bridge, holding up their hands as a token of surrender. As soon as those on board had taken their places in the lifeboats, they rowed toward us and showed the liveliest interest in the final torpedoing of their steamer. They looked upon it as a new kind of sport, and under the present conditions they could watch the performance in the most comfortable way. The sea was like a mirror, and reflected the smiling spring sunshine, whose warming rays were most agreeably felt. The English captain had scarcely been on board my submarine a moment when he begged that we might go together and verify the excellent aim of our first shot through the forward part of his ship, which he told me had nearly grazed his ear. I consented to go on his lifeboat and admire with him, to our mutual enjoyment, the irreproachable marksmanship of my gunner, although I did not accept a drink of whiskey one of the English officers offered me. On seeing the gaping hole in the forecastle, the captain and his men clapped their hands and cried out, A very good shot! The captain congratulated me for securing, as he asserted, the richest prize I had ever made. But I assured him we had sunk even more valuable cargoes than the present one. I decided, as the sea was calm, and no ship was in sight, to spare our torpedoes and shells, and to put an end to the steamer with little hand-grenades. The Englishman took a sportsman-like interest in the proceedings, and one of the officers even volunteered to show me the most effective position for the explosive. I naturally did not gratify his wish to place it there himself, for I knew myself very accurately the most vulnerable spot in the ship. In a few moments a big hole was torn in the side of the crown of Castile, and with a gurgling sound the waters rushed in. At the same time, long yellow threads of the finest oats floated out on the sea, and glistening with a golden shimmer, gave proof long after the steamer had sunk of the precious cargo which had lain within its flanks. You poor French army horses! I fear your rations were cut short for a while. I had made an interesting study of the manner in which the English crews of the present day were composed. Apart from the British officers, there were but few experienced seamen on board. This was made evident by the awkward way the men usually handled the lifeboats. Even with the enormous increase of wages, sailors could not be found to risk their lives in the danger zone, and a lot of untrained fellows, Negroes and Chinamen, revealed by their clumsy rowing that they had only recently been pressed into service. Various other interesting incidents occurred on our return trip, which I shall not mention now, but having safely reached our newly conquered port of Ostend, we read to our amusement in a French paper that our U-boat had been sunk in the channel by a fleet of six fishing steamers. We were again warmly welcomed by our comrades from the Army and Navy, all anxious to hear the news we had to tell, 
and we had the special honor of a visit from His Royal Highness the Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria, who, after inspecting our boat, permitted me to give him a detailed account of our recent splendid cruise. We had many other experiences during the quiet, warm summer months, with their long, clear nights, which enabled us to achieve the further destruction of a large number of steamers. It was glorious to work in fine weather on our U-boat on the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, so peaceful at this season of the year, and, so doing, we indulged in much friendly intercourse with the various fishermen we met. Fishing steamers have replaced the old sailboats to a great extent, and they represent an enormous fishing industry. Our larder was daily replenished with fresh fish, which was a greatly appreciated item on our monotonous bill of fare. One windy evening in August, we captured a Belgian steamer bringing home coal from Cardiff. The crew, having left the ship, the latter was rapidly sinking, when, to our astonishment, a man sprang on deck from below. He had evidently been forgotten, and our shot, going through the steamer, had warned him of his danger. He hesitated to obey my repeated orders to jump overboard, until finally, encased in two life-belts, he plunged into the water and began to swim. But the screw was still slowly revolving, and he was drawn deep down by the suction of the water. We had given him up for lost, when we were amazed to see him reappear on the other side of the ship. The screw, which had slowly pulled him down, had thrown him up again, and he swam towards us. A big wave having tossed him onto our low deck, we were glad to find he was unhurt, and we gave him the best of care. He was a Dutchman, and after a fortnight spent in our midst, he was so happy he no longer wished to leave us. When it came to our sinking of the Midland Queen, a similar incident occurred. A Negro had been forgotten by his white fellow countrymen, and on finding himself abandoned and alone, he was so greatly scared that he did not dare to leave the sinking ship. We watched him and beckoned to him to come to us, but he refused and swore at us furiously. Presently the Midland Queen pitched violently forward and stood nearly erect with her nose in the water. Then, with a shrill whistling sound, she dived below the surface of the waves. The negro's black head vanished in the turmoil of the waters. Then, suddenly, a loud detonation occurred. An explosion of compressed air within the ship threw up sky-high barrels and boards, and among them, to our unbelieving eyes, we saw the wriggling body of the negro. He was projected into the sea and swam towards us, apparently none the worse after this strange and violent experience. We rescued him and handed him over to his mates who had rowed back to his assistance. On our return voyage through the North Sea, we met a large sailboat with the Swedish flag flying from the topmast. She lay completely becalmed and signaled for us to draw near. We saw a large crowd gathered on her deck and we approached cautiously, fearing some trap, when, to our joyful surprise, we found she had one hundred and fifty German officers and sailors on board. 
They belonged to one of our auxiliary cruisers, the Meteor. Her captain, after many exploits, had been pursued by several English cruisers, and to save his little vessel from being captured, he had deliberately sent her to the bottom of the sea, and the Swedish sailboat had picked up the crew. Our shipwrecked comrades told us they were desperately hungry, but our own provisions were exhausted, so we took them in tow, for not a breath of wind stirred the sails. By clear sunshine we merrily covered the short distance to our nearest port, and towards midday the sailing ship and ourselves let down our anchors once more off the German coast. End of Part 4